This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We're going to spend the rest of the year, except for Christmas, uh, looking at Revelation chapters 2 and 3. There's perhaps no more difficult book of the Bible to interpret than the book of Revelation. There's no more fanciful, no more place in Scripture where there's fanciful ideas and all kinds of stuff happening. So because of the difficulty of interpreting the book, I will stay in the kiddie pool. Chapters 2 and 3 are the easiest sections of the entire book to interpret for sure. And uh, so we, will, we won't be in the deep end. We'll be in the kiddie pool. But I think it'll really be helpful um, to, to help us think about what Jesus um, thinks of his church. What does Jesus uh, prize and commend in his church? And on the other hand, what is Jesus concerned about for his church? We find this in this section of Scripture. As we go through, I think if you look, look back at Revelation 1, one thing that could be very helpful in what we're going to look at, and even if you read farther and read the entire book, the, the first, uh, what would it be, five words of the, of the Revelation I think are most key in interpreting it. It says, 1-1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. This book is about Jesus. It's a revelation, an unveiling, an uncovering of Jesus, and it's delivered, it's given by Jesus as well. So it is of him, and it is from him. And as you read through the book, you find all kinds of things that go with apocalyptic literature. There are lots of visions. There are these huger-than-life characters, a beast, a dragon, uh, the great prostitute, uh, the, 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 a number of the beasts. There are all these. There's bowls of wrath, and uh, there's horsemen, and all these big pictures that, that reveal some type of truth. But it, they all ultimately point to Jesus. So it is apocalyptic. It is a prophecy, but it is ultimately securing its readers in Jesus. Now, here's an important thing to get as that'll prepare you for our study. It's also a letter of sorts. It's a letter of sorts. Look at verse four in chapter one. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And we're going to look at each of those seven churches and what Jesus says to them. It, it, is, a, it is actually a document that is written to real churches, suffering churches, churches that are enduring difficulty. Churches that are enduring persecution and opposition. So it is written to comfort and to encourage them in the midst of great suffering. We, we studied this summer, the book of Philippians, and we talked about how that was a letter that spoke directly into their church context. The same is true here. The revelation speaks beyond their context. It speaks to the future, to be sure. But it speaks in a primary way and in a significant way like this. Churches that are suffering, that are enduring difficulty, that are in the heat of, uh, of fiery trials, Jesus comes to them and he reveals himself to them. He reveals his power. He, he shows them what is happening behind the scenes. He takes their eyes off the tribulation, the challenge, the difficulty that they're facing right in front of them. He takes, 
He takes that and he reveals, he kind of like opens the curtain and shows them what's really going on. That God is in control. That God is powerful. That God will win the day and that one thing, one day all things will be made right. That's really what you want to know about Revelation more than anything else. That is a revelation of Jesus. If, if you think Revelation is primarily about Nicolas Cage crash landing an airplane that's half full and half has people's clothes in empty seats, if, that, if you think that's primarily the focus, um, Nicolas Cage will not be mentioned in here anywhere in, in, in the letter. I want you to know. But that's not the primary focus. The primary focus is on Jesus and his care for these churches and for us as well. So let's read, starting in uh, chapter 2, to the church in Ephesus. We're going to read this letter and study it today. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who hasn't here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize our need for you whenever we open the scripture and as we embark on a new series and we look at uh, your words to these churches, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to the churches. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us as a church, what you're saying to us as believers. Help us understand what you were saying then and help it to apply to us today. So we ask you that you would fulfill in this study and in this message today, we ask you that you would fulfill the very purpose of the book, that it would be a revelation of Jesus Christ, so that you would disclose yourself to us, Jesus, in greater glory. We pray that the Spirit would open our ears, open our hearts, open our eyes, and give us faith to follow and, uh, and power to obey and grace to believe, we pray. So we ask these things and pray that you'd fill me with your spirit to declare your truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he's writing seven churches. I didn't put up a map, but if we did have one, you'd see they're kind of almost circular. And so the idea was probably that a messenger would come and deliver this to each of the churches. The letter's from Jesus. It's directly from him. Now, John is the one who is writing this, but um, if you have a red letter Bible, this letter is in red. It is, it is written, it is spoken from Jesus to his church. And the first church he speaks to is Ephesus. This is probably towards the end of the first 
um, century. It's probably about 30 years since Paul had written to Ephesus, the letter of Ephesians. So this is probably about 30 years or so later, most think. And he probably starts by addressing the church in Ephesus because of all these other churches in Asia Minor, this is the most significant city, first of all. This is one of the most significant cities in the world at its time. It was a city that had a great seaport. There were three different trade routes that ran through Ephesus. So it made it a place where people visited, where people came through. It was an influential city, great commerce, great wealth. And the city was known, this, this plays out in the book of Revelation probably in some of the pressure they received it. It also housed uh, the temple, the temple of Diana or Artemis, um, the goddess. It was one of the seven wonders of the world was this temple. So people came from all over to worship Diana uh, at the city of Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. Um, as well, there was in all of these cities, there was emperor worship going on as well. So there was a requirement to not only respect your emperor, but actually at varying levels to worship the emperor. So it was a dark city uh, in terms of idolatry and pagan belief. It was an influential city. And probably, scholars say, it was probably the housed the most significant church at the end of the first century. Probably Ephesus was the most significant, influential church in the world at the end of the first century. Paul had planted the church, had been there uh, a year. I think he had been there on three different occasions. Uh, He then sent Timothy and wrote to Timothy. Timothy had been in Ephesus. John, who wrote uh, the Revelation, had been at Ephesus. And we don't know if this is true or not, but tradition actually says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was buried there. Don't know if that's true, but definitely... Uh, Paul had been there uh, and done significant missionary work. And so this church is influential and significant, and probably the reality is because of its influence, it would attract more than any of the other churches, it would attract those who would seek to influence the Christian movement, uh, especially uh, false prophets and false apostles who would come. Well, it begins with, uh, the letter to them begins with uh, Jesus Uh, stating that he is among them. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 1 tells us that there were uh, seven golden lampstands and that they were the seven churches. There's an angel at each church as well uh, that it's addressed to. Who is the angel? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, It could be an actual angel. Some think that there is an angel that perhaps guarded or protected each church. The text doesn't say that, but some say that. Some think it was uh, perhaps, the the word means messenger. So some think it was perhaps the pastor of the church. I tend towards that application thinking of myself as quite angelic. And uh, so... (laughs) That's probably not it. I don't think that's actually it because uh, churches were not pastored by an individual but by plurality of elders uh, in the New Testament. So I'm not sure. I actually don't know. I did a fair bit of reading on this this week and came up with I'm not sure, but it won't hinder our understanding of the text. So what we do know, what is clear, is that he walks among the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. He is with them. What he's communicating is that I am among you. I'm among, a lampstand represented the church. I'm among you. I'm with you. Jesus is walking the aisles, as it were, of the church. He's among his people 
in these churches, and he communicates that to us. And then what he does is he gives both an evaluation of the church and then an exhortation to the church. He gives an evaluation. This happens in every church. Some churches get mixed reviews. He commends some things, and he corrects some things. Some churches only get commendation. Uh, some only get correction. So there's a variety. This is a mixed report of, on Ephesus as he evaluates the church. And the first thing he tells us uh, about, I'm going to really want to point out two things he tells us about the church. The first is that they were strong in truth, that they had sound doctrine, we could say, that they were orthodox. Look at verse 2, the second part of the verse. He says, <clears throat> I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So he's saying, those who come to you claiming to be sent ones with teaching with truth, you test them. You evaluate them. Like the, like the Bereans in the book of Acts, you test what you hear, you compare it with the scripture, and those who are false, you find them to be false. When false apostles or false teachers came through the trade routes, were blowing through town on a circuit with all kinds of motives and showed up at Ephesus, they didn't get a hearing. Because the leaders there evidently tested them. They were evaluated and they were found, those who called themselves apostles and not, were found to be false. When Paul wrote the Ephesians about 30 years ago, he actually referenced this. In Ephesians 4.14, he talked about the church being equipped and built up so that, he wrote, quote, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, unquote. So he said, you, the church needs to be built up so that when the winds blow through, the church doesn't just move this way and believe this and this way and believe that. And over here, all the fad doctrines, all the heretical doctrines, he, Paul said, that we don't, don't want the church, we want to be built on the truth, on the established on Jesus Christ, built on his word, so that you're not tossed back and forth. Well, guess what? The false teachers came, just like he wrote of, and the Ephesians stood the test. The Ephesians were not tossed in about tossed about by every wind of doctrine. No, when false doctrine came through false apostles, they found them to be false. This is really important. This is really important in a world that had multiple gods and multiple pressure to worship other gods in Ephesus. The church at Ephesus stood strong. They didn't open themselves to those who would come and bring false teaching. Doctrine matters, and these, this church loved truth. They were a truth church. They loved truth. And we always have to be vigilant about this. As a church and as a Christian today, we always have to be vigilant about knowing the Scripture and about believing truth. We want to be like the Ephesians in that way. Last week, an article came out. And some of you may say, well, this is so irrelevant. Why, why, are, you know, why are you hammering the, the pulpit on this point? We all know about Jesus here. Um, because we just want to always guard against receiving false doctrine. We always want to guard and, and understand true doctrine. Last week, an article came out in Christianity Today 
uh, magazine, which is kind of a, uh, it's, it's a very popular magazine. It's kind of a mainstream evangelical magazine, I would say. And this was the, the uh, uh, title of the article. You can read this later if you want to find it. It's on the internet. It's a, the title is, New Poll find, Finds Evangelicals' Favorite Heresies. And a big poll was done among those who call themselves evangelicals. We would call ourselves as a church evangelical. Typically, evangelical usually means that we believe in the authority of Scripture, that we believe in the gospel, and that we believe that someone must be converted personally to be a Christian, that you must uh, have faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and through his resurrection, and we must turn and believe in him. So that's an evangelical. We believe in conversion, believe the Scripture, that kind of thing. Well, they, they interviewed a bunch of evangelicals. And they asked them doctrinal questions, and they found that many evangelicals hold to doctrines that historically the church has has said, these are not orthodox doctrines. There have been councils and decisions in the history of the church saying, that's false teaching. There's been teachers banned from the church, early in the church, for teaching some of the things that evangelicals believe today. Um, So one of them was, uh, they wrote that almost all evangelicals say they believe in the Trinity. 96% believe in the Trinity. That's good. Uh, and Jesus is fully human and fully divine. 88% believe that. Not as good. You'd like 100. But 88% of those who call themselves evangelicals believe that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. So 96% believe the Trinity. However, Nearly a quarter, 22% of evangelicals interviewed said the Father is more divine than Jesus is. And 9% weren't sure. So 31%, almost a third of all people calling themselves evangelical, are either unsure or are certain that Jesus isn't as God, as much God as the Father is God. And uh, they go in and talk about how the council in Nicaea in 325 rejected that teaching uh, from a man named Arius that, that taught that Jesus is different, different substance. He's different. He's not God like the Father is. So that's a significant issue if Jesus is not God like the Father is. Another one is uh, they, they ask questions about the Holy Spirit. They said if evangelicals sometimes misunderstand doctrines about Jesus, the third member of the Trinity has it much worse More than half, 51%, said that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. More than half of American evangelicals in this study, with their plus or minus 1.8% differential, so 51% believe, may the force be with you, is more biblical than the Holy Spirit is a person. (laughs) A force. He's just a force. He's not a person to be... Uh, worshipped. They go on and talk about salvation and who does what in salvation. And uh, anyway, it's, it's an interesting study that just gave window. As I read it, I thought, well, this gives window into where we are. We could say doctrine doesn't matter. But if the Holy Spirit's not the person of God, he's just a force, that leads to all kinds of wackiness, and that leads to all kinds of um, problems in the church. If Jesus, if we're not worshiping Jesus as God, who is equal with the Father in essence, as God, then we are buying into a, an, historical, uh, an historical heresy. Now, if you're new and you're just finding out about Christianity, I'm not here to be, maybe you're just finding out about Jesus, so please do not feel, uh, you know, somehow rebuked about that. You're just coming to learn and figure it out. That's great. We're all learning. But what I'm talking about here are some basic things that are kind of basic to our historic faith. So this church was sound, and we want to be sound in doctrine as well. He goes on 
to say that they were not only discerning of teaching, like false apostles' teachers, but they were also discerning about false practice. False teaching will lead to false practice. If the Holy Spirit is an it, a force, and not a him, a person, God, that false doctrine will lead to false practice. And uh, so that's, they were discerning of practice as well. Look at verse 6. You have this going for you, Jesus says. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus hates the practices of this certain group of people who are not orthodox, not truly Christian, but they have some kind of practices. Now, he doesn't say, we're going we're to come to the Nicolaitans in another letter, because they're going to be mentioned again with a little bit of more context. They were probably associated with a very lax doctrine. They were probably associated with becoming just like the world and allowing sexual immorality, maybe even celebrating sexual immorality and that sort of thing. But whatever they believed, the, the, the important point is that the Ephesians had truth and they could see this truth leads to a false practice. And so we hate that practice. Unless that sounds strong, Jesus says he hates the practice. As one commentator said, the Ephesians are praised for their intolerance. They are praised for their intolerance against false doctrine and against evil practices in the church and endorsement of evil practices in the church. So they are discerning. They are sound. They know where to draw the line. They know where to draw the line between truth and error, godly practice, and immoral practice. They know where to draw those lines. They maintained a purity of doctrine and practice. Well, they're not just a bunch of theologians, heady, walking around, you know, knowing all the truth. They're also hard workers. So they have sound doctrine and they have hard work. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now, the the way this Greek is constructed, the, the way this sentence is constructed, toil and patient endurance describe the works. So when he says, I know your works, we could read it like this. I know your works, namely, or I know your works specifically I'm talking about, your toil and your patient endurance. Your toil and your patient endurance. Here's what toil means. It literally means hard work which exhausts. I mean, this church is serious. Jesus says to this church, I know you're working so hard, and he means in the Christian sense, he means living their life for Jesus. You are working so hard, it is, it is exhausting. They weren't lazy. They weren't just kind of checking in for what they could sort of get out of it or something like this. They were invested. They were serving. They were active and involved. When they thought about Ephesus, our church community, a place for hard work a place to serve, a place to be involved. They weren't just saying a place to sort of check in now and then. They were saying a place to really invest your life. It doesn't say what all their works were, but certainly uh, laboring for the truth is partly, I'm sure, part of it. Serving one another must have been part of it. They were toiling to help one another, care for one another, serve one another. They were toiling to spread the gospel, I'm sure. They were toiling to get the message of the gospel to those who didn't know. They were toiling to study God's word and know his truth and then take a stand on it. That They weren't convenience Christians. They were toiling Christians. And Jesus says this as a commendation. He doesn't say you were working hard to, to get good works to go to heaven. He doesn't say that. 
But he says, you were, you were working. I know what you do. You serve. You work hard. This is a great encouragement. I mean, Jesus says to them, hey, church at Ephesus, can you imagine? The guy walks in and says, uh, whoever the delivers the letter from John, we've got a letter from Jesus. This is what Jesus thinks about your church. Wow. I mean, if that got up on the website the week before, there would be great attendance that Sunday to find out who's coming to hear what Jesus thinks of our church. Here's what Jesus thinks. Jesus says he's among you. He's among the lampstands. I've been present. I've been with you, and I know what you're doing. What's the first thing he says? I know you're working hard. I see it. I know it. How encouraging to people laboring to know that the Lord sees, the Lord observes, he is among them. He is with them. How wonderfully encouraging that is. I read a a commentary on that verse, um, and this is what the author wrote, uh, probably uh, in my office. is No, no, here it is. I do have it. I thought oh, I didn't bring it. This is what the author wrote about that. He, he took that. I know your works, your hard labor, your exhausting labor. I see it. He brought it to modern day. This is what he wrote. Jesus says, I know your works. To every Sunday school teacher who spends hours each week in preparation, though only a handful show up early, Jesus says, I know your works. To every diligent believer who stuffs the bulletin, it's a little bit of a dated analogy, with inserts, or cleans up in the kitchen after a potluck dinner and picks up trash following the Sunday service, Jesus says, I know your works. Our Lord is ever mindful of those deeds that are rarely seen and perhaps never acknowledged by other humans. That visit to the nursing home to pray for a lonely widow was for an audience of one. Not, not the widow, Jesus, capital O-N-E. That hot meal prepared for an ailing friend was a fragrant aroma to God. The Lord Jesus may often be the only one who knows, but it is enough that he knows. And I remind you again, he most assuredly knows. I know, Ephesians, I know what you're doing. I see your exhausting labor that no one else sees. I see what it costs you. I see the fatigue. I see the burden you carry. I see the prayer. I see and I know. It's very encouraging. He not only knows their hard work. Secondly, he knows their patient endurance. Patient endurance. It means to suffer difficulty and do it with patience. It means when adversity comes, they didn't respond with impatience, but they waited and trusted the Lord. I mean, that's the acid test in many ways of an individual or a church. How do they respond in difficulty? We often don't know much about our faith until difficulty comes. And in the Ephesians, when difficulty came, when false teachers came, when trouble came, when there's pressure to worship at the temple of Diana, pressure to worship the emperor, when there's pressure within to compromise and to believe something false or whatever it is, they are enduring those difficulties patiently. And I love what he, what he says next. He says that, uh, I know you, verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently, he says it again, and bearing up, for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. 
You're doing this for my namesake. What does that mean? It means it's costing you to follow Jesus in this culture that he's writing. You're doing it for my name, not for your comfort, but for my name you are doing this. You are working hard and you are enduring suffering for me, and you're not growing weary. It's one thing to say I'm patiently enduring, but man, I am on my last nerve. I'm patiently enduring, but I have like a shred a shred of hope left, that's all. No, they patiently endured and didn't even grow weary. I mean, this is an amazing work that's being described here. They have had trials and they have stood. It's interesting, in Acts 20, Paul meets with the elders of this church, Ephesus, probably 30 years before this letter. Paul meets with them. It's the last time he ever sees them. And this is what he says to the elders. I'm leaving, you'll never see me again, but let me tell you what's going to happen in your church. This is what he says to them. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The wolves came, and here's the report. The Ephesians endured. They worked hard. They endured. They disciplined those who were false apostles and said, we will not have this. We will not believe false doctrine. I mean, this is, this is really amazing. I know you're enduring patiently. You're bearing up. You're carrying it for my name's sake. You haven't grown weary. This is an amazing work of God in this church. What a testimony. They're, they're a truth-oriented church. They're doctrinally discerning. They test false apostles. They don't tolerate evil. They have worked hard, and it has cost them. They have endured persecution. They've passed the test of adversity. I mean, if you could raid a church, if you could find out about a church, this is what you'd want to look for. Do they believe the scripture? Yes. Sign me up. I want to be in that church. Do they believe the Bible? Yes. Do they, do they follow the fads of the moment or do they follow the false teachers? No, they have nothing to do with them. What about evil practices being brought in by false teachers? No, they don't give in to that. They don't even tolerate evil men. By that, they mean leaders who come in to harm. They don't tolerate that. They don't just show up. They serve. They work. They have responded to difficulty well. They, they fear the Lord. They don't tolerate evil men. They fear the Lord. I mean, this is a church that if you were investigating, you would say, I think, if there were more than church, one church in Ephesus, you'd be thinking, I think I think I want to plug in here. They believe the word. They've passed a test. It's good to be a part of a group of people that have passed a test, have passed adversity. It's no guarantee they'll pass it well the next time, but it does mean they've been through something. And that seasons a people, that roots a people, that matures a people, a people who go through something difficult together and come out on the other side patiently enduring, that says something that's very important. And so they did. An amazing church. Yet Jesus says something very sober. Verse 4, I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Whoa, do we have a place in our theology for Jesus having something against us? Is Jesus for them? Absolutely. If we go back over to the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 4, grace to you and peace from him, Jesus. Peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace. Peace to the church. Look down at verse uh, 5. To him, that's Jesus, to Jesus who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to God the Father, to him be glory forever. Is Jesus for them? He says grace to them, peace to them. He says he loves them and has freed them from their sin. Is he for them? Absolutely. There's a difference in having Jesus for us and having Jesus with something against us. And both can be true at the same time. It doesn't say that Jesus was against them. If Jesus was fundamentally against them, he wouldn't be appealing for their repentance here. If he was fundamentally against them, he would judge them and let them go their way. But he is appealing that they change. So he has something against them. He has something against them. At the same time, he loves them and has grace towards them. But grace and love do not mean that there's not a call to repent to a church or a believer. A call to repent and do what you did at first. Those are not opposite. They run together. Grace, is a, grace does call us to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Grace does change us. Grace does discipline us as sons and daughters because God loves us. Where there is no discipline, where there is no correction, there is no love. Jesus can't say in chapter 1, I love you, and then never raise any concerns with anyone. Because that's not loving. He wants, them to be, he wants them to know him. He wants them to be conformed to his image. He wants them to experience his grace. And so even though they are doctrinally discerning, discerning in practice, enduring patiently, working hard, all great stuff, there is this one problem. And he, this is Christ's exhortation to them. Verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Sometimes it's translated, you have left your first love, lost your first love, forsaken your first love. Ephesians had plenty of truth. Ephesians had plenty of hard work, plenty of endurance, but they had abandoned love. They had abandoned love. They once had love. But they abandoned that love that they had at first. Now, what kind of love is he talking about? I always thought there was two options. I found a third option this week and didn't know anybody believed. One option is love for God, love for Christ. You left your first love. You used to love me personally. Now you've drifted away from that. Some people say, no, that's not it. It's love for one another. It's about loving brothers. Return back to what you did at first. Love your brothers and your sisters. Some say it's they've lost love for one another. I never knew anybody believed. I knew those two things. I never knew anybody believed until this week. Actually, one of the best scholars on Revelation thinks it means loving the lost. So we got our whole mission statement in there. Love Jesus, love his church, love the lost, love his people. So which is it? I think it's probably both the first two. I think it's it's hard. We can't look at the text and say, this just means they've lost their love for Christ. And we can't look at the text and prove this just look, this means their loss of love for one another. I think those two are always tied together. So I think we're safe saying it's, it's probably both of them. I mean, the great commandment says, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbors yourself. Jesus weds those two. He later calls us to love others as we have been loved. But Jesus weds those two loves. John also wrote in 1 John um, 1 John 4, he said, whoever does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So he's saying, if you don't love your brother, don't don't be saying you love God. 
You've never even seen God. This is a person you're called to love that you can see. You don't love them, then you really don't love God. The two are tied together. To try to separate them too much probably misses the point. I think we're safe as saying that, that they, had, they had drifted from their love towards God, and that affected their love towards others. They believed the right thing. They did the right thing, but their hearts weren't motivated by love. Their hearts weren't motivated by love. I mean, how could a church that's doing so well in really important areas have abandoned the love they had at first? How how can everything, how can that happen? How can it be that Jesus is saying, you're doctrinally sound, you're working hard, you're enduring. By the way, I may come and shut the lights out if this doesn't change. That's what he says. I'm going to remove your lampstand. How can that be? Well, the way it can be is because often what's on the outside, it's not just what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside that really, really counts. Imagine if you saw a healthy person, an active person, a physically fit person who didn't know that inside them was growing rapidly a cancerous tumor. You could look at them and say, they're active, they're healthy, they're full of life, they're joyful, they're strong physically, they get a lot accomplished, they look so alive, their countenance is bright. And yet, only through some means to look on the inside could you see a tumor that if not removed would take their life. That's the situation here. They look really good in some of the key areas. But inside is this growing tumor that must be dealt with. Must be dealt with. Now, how could this go together? I, I think it can go together because we can, we, can get, we can be motivated correctly and do the right things. But after we do the right things for a long time, after we believe the right things and do the right things, sort of the inward motivation can sort of cool off after a while. And we, we, we got the what, but we don't have the why. When we were first converted, we had the why. I love you, Jesus. I want to serve you. I want to serve your people. I want to believe truth about you. And so we learn as a new believer. We learn what the Bible teaches. We learn about Christ. We follow him. And then after a while, we still stay doing that. We still believe the same thing we believed at the beginning, the truth of God. We still are serving. We're still enduring. But the why, the why changes it, it, it's not motivated by love. It's, it's duty. It's obligation. It's tradition. It's history. It's, well, I used to be that way, and we're just coasting. We're just coasting along. And the first step towards, really, a church falling away from the Lord, the first step is in the heart. It is losing the love we had at first. So we can still have a great statement of faith that believes the Holy Spirit is a person and Jesus is just as much God as the Father. We can have all that in our statement of faith. We can still work really hard. And yet we could find a cooling in our heart. The problem with Ephesus is not a what problem. They believe the right stuff and do the right stuff. It's a why problem. Why do they believe that? And why do they work so hard? And why are they enduring? They have light but they don't have heat. 
And, and the decline is serious. These are the first steps of decline. The, the first step is a cooling of the heart. But if it continues, Jesus says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent, verse 5. Now, he's not talking about them losing their salvation. The scripture's clear that when you receive eternal life, eternal is that. It's forever. So an individual believer who's genuinely converted, genuinely converted, will have spiritual life for eternity. But a church can lose its lampstand. What is that? The lights can go out, maybe not physically, but they can lose their influence. They can lose their witness. They can lose their fruitfulness. Travel through Europe, or forget Europe, travel through any large city in the United States, and you will see abandoned buildings, church buildings, that were once vibrant storehouses of gospel life, gospel preaching, community life, and something they moved. Probably it started with a cooling of the heart. Usually it then led to some kind of doctrinal, which had not happened here in Ephesus, but doctrinal error, oftentimes a devaluing of the scripture. We don't really believe the scripture, becoming just like the culture, adapting into the culture so that there was no difference in the church and the world. And the church just sort of died. It died off when its oldest members died off. There was no reproducing life to it, and it died off. And you go and get the lampstand is there. It's a beautiful building, beautiful building. But the influence, the witness, leading people to Christ, discipling people, that's all gone. Their lampstand was removed in some way, their influence, their fruitfulness. And so that is the warning here. It's a warning for all of us. I mean, look at what he says in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's not just saying this to Ephesus. He's saying this to Grace Church. He's saying this to any church that believes in Jesus. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. I think the church at Ephesus is going to become an increasing, increasingly sober and hopeful warning to us in the United States. Because our culture is changing before our eyes. And where the church used to have some measure of favor in the culture, where the church used to get a pass on certain things, where the church used to have sort of a carved-out protection, and at least a generation ago, even respect, that is eroded and eroding quickly. And we will one day, if, if God does not intervene with revival and change, we'll one day be very much like the culture in Ephesus, which is a culture that is actively opposed to Christians. Actively opposed to them. And I think here's what happens. Once you spend all your energy defining yourself against error, once you're having to not only draw the line, but hold the line when the challenges come. Hold the line when the cultural challenges come, which say, you must change. You can't believe that. That is intolerant to believe Jesus is the only way. You can't say that. You can't speak of sin publicly. You can't do those, or certain kinds of sins. You can't do those things. Once you spend all your energy defining yourself and standing and holding strong at great cost, it very easily can erode love. It can be all about orthodoxy, which is beautiful. It can be all about orthodoxy, and the God of the orthodoxy is forgotten. The love for the brother is forgotten. Or as the guy I read this week said, the love for the world is forgotten because it's us and them. They're the enemy we're defining ourselves against, and there's no compassion. There's no brokenness. There's no love. 
for the person that needs Jesus. It's us defining. It's us enduring. It's us working just to survive. And the harder that kind of work and that kind of pressure is brought to bear, a couple things can happen. If our love for Christ continues, we're a brighter and a brighter and a brighter light in the midst of the darkness. If our love for one another continues, we're a brighter and brighter light. We're a city set on a hill. If our love for the world, even in the midst of patient endurance, the love of Jesus flows through us, then it's a city set on a hill. It's salt and light. It's wonderful. But if it becomes against about the struggle and the fight and the defining ourselves and holding on and not giving up ground, and we, we have to do that, but we lose the love, you have Ephesus. You have Ephesus. And I think the culture around us is, is leading us to be in a context where this temptation will become more and more real. Even today, it's real. We don't have to project in the future. It's real for all of us. So the good news is Jesus doesn't just point this out, but Jesus is a gentle shepherd. He's loving, he's correcting, but he's healing, he's embracing, he's empowering as well. And so he gives them the remedy to their problem. What does he say? Verse 5, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Real quickly, and we are done on this. First, remember. The way back, once we've abandoned our love, is by remembering. It's not just getting the doctrine right. It's remembering the God of the doctrine. It's not just saying, yeah, Jesus is equal to the Father. It's adoring Jesus who is equal. It's being in awe and wonder of Jesus, the God-man. It's loving. and Remember, falling from a significant height, it's calling them back. What made that height so wonderful? We can ask that to each of us here today, or even for our church. What made the early days, why was there such a passion in life there? There's passion in life now, but why was there such a freshness in the early days of the church? Think about your own conversion. Why was it so, what was it about that day? Remember from the height, what was the height? I can't speak for you, but I think the height was Jesus is alive. My sins are forgiven. I've got eternal life. God loves me. I know my purpose. The God who created me has burst open in my heart that I know him. I've been adopted into his family. This is a family. Some of us came from difficult. Maybe you came from a very terrible family. Maybe you were subject to abuse or neglect, and all of a sudden you're brought into the church, and this is a family that loves one another, the family I never knew. I love these people. I love God the Father that brought me into his family, who's forgiven me. I was the prod. Maybe you're the prodigal. I'm the prodigal, and he waited for me. He ran to me. He embraced me and loved me. Remember that, Jesus. He's the same. Remember from where you've fallen, where it was amazing truth. Whoa, wait a minute. Let me get this right. God, the Father, and the Spirit are all one. They're all God. Yes. Whoa, I can't. I don't get all that, but that's amazing. Jesus died for my sins. Wait a minute. Everything I've done was placed on him and all my sins are forgiven? Past, present, and future? Just that sense of relief. Whoa! This is incredible. Remember what it was like when you were first converted. And maybe if you were converted as a child and you don't remember that exactly, remember a time when he was real, when truth was life, when you were eager to read your Bible. Why? Because you loved the author of the Bible. 
and the Spirit was drawing. You remember when you couldn't wait to get to the Bible study in the dorm, or you couldn't wait to get to the home group, or you couldn't wait to get to the Sunday school class at church, or wherever it was. Why? Because you were a sponge soaking it in. You loved the Word of God. You couldn't get enough. Remember that love for Jesus. Remember that. Remember your love for others. Remember your love for those who need the Lord. Remember when the gospel was not only intellectually believed, but it was felt in the soul. And I'm using the word feel intentionally. It was known. There was an affection in the soul. It was real. Remember that. Remember that we love him only because he first loved us. And think back on his love for you and how real that was. Here's something interesting about the language here. Remember, verse 5, where you have fallen, and repent are two different, they're, they're expressed differently in Greek. Their, their tenses are different. Remember is a continuous attitude. Repentance is a decisive act. So always remember what it was like. And when you sin, repent. That's an act. And turn back and remember. A lot of repentance is remembering who he is and what he's done, certainly in this situation. Repent. So remember and then repent. Repent means to turn. It means to turn back. It starts with remembering, but it's going to lead to doing. So we are to repent. What are we to repent from? Well, there's lots of reasons we could grow cold. I don't know your reason. I don't know my reason. I don't know. I can, I can speculate the Ephesians reason. I mean, I kind of talked to, about it. There, there could be a self-righteousness when you are posturing yourself against wolves from the inside and attack from the outside, there can be a self-righteousness. We're right. We're standing for the truth. There could be a pride. He does not critique their doctrine. Amazing. They were knowledgeable. You're the leading church in the world at that point. Everybody's looking at you. Even Jesus says you believe right things. Um, Knowledge puffs up. There could be an arrogance about them. I don't know, but there could be an arrogance. Standing for truth in the midst of darkness. There could be a self-reliance. We're trusting God, we're leaning on God, but all of a sudden it's just rote. It's just a habit. It's just a rhythm. It's just a cycle. And it just becomes very, very not life-giving following Jesus and being among his people. But, but we're, we're, just in, we're in our own strength rather than trusting God. So we, we, we just go through the motions. Whatever it is, could be a love for the world, could be a, a sin, an unconfessed sin, a pet sin that becomes, grows and starts to take over our heart and mind and becomes more and more uh, dominating of our life, like greed, position, power, um, lust, escape, escape through all kinds of things, alcohol or drugs, or escape through just vegging out forever with entertainment. It could be all kinds of escapes, a hobby that just takes all of our attention away from our priorities. Could be, it could be anything that caused us to move away from the way it was to the way it is. So remember what it was like, repent from whatever drew you away, and then he says, do the things you did, do the works you did at first. So return there. Some of that may be by faith. Some of that may be, well, okay, I haven't really been engaging the Lord in, in his scripture, reading his Bible, but I'm going to go back and do it by faith. Do what you did at first. I used to do it and really encounter him. I don't feel like I'm encountering him, but I'm going to do. I'm going to respond because I'm remembering his love for me. I'm motivated by his love. I want to put myself in a position to receive his love and his grace and his glory and see him so that I'm not just going through the motions, but I'm encountering him. 
Maybe it's cultivating relationships with Christ. I mean, with, with the Christians, what I meant to say. Maybe it's building our lives. Well, I used to have great harmony and fellowship with others. I don't now. I'm separate. Well, maybe I need to get back and, and engage them again. Maybe I need to do that. Maybe it's slow down. This fall, we've talked about slowing down, gone through crazy busy. Maybe it's slowing down and praying, listening to his word, praising him, reading. Maybe it's taking our time to re-engage the hurriedness of toil, hard, exhausting work among the people of God, the endurance, the, the, the endurance of just continuing on. Maybe it's just slowing down with him, with others, listening. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. It can happen in Ephesus, which was a great church. It can happen in my heart. It can happen in your heart. The good news is that Jesus is speaking to his church. He didn't just speak in Ephesus. He's speaking to some of us this morning. Why? Because he's for us and he loves us. And if he has this against us, that we have abandoned our first love, he invites us to return. That's repent. He invites us to remember. He invites us to return. He invites us to experience his grace and his presence and his power again. Jesus is not just saying, I'm really mad at you guys in Ephesus, and you, I am that far. One more time, I am that far from shutting out the lights. That is not the heart of the Father or the heart of the Son. What he's saying is, this is grievous what has happened. You have some things going really well, but internally you're drifting, and that's grievous. And you know what that leads to? It leads to you shutting, me shutting things down here in terms of influence, fruitfulness, multiplication, reproduction, life, growth, mature. I'm going to shut down the church's influence. But you can turn. It doesn't have to be that way. You can turn. And I'm, he's there to empower us. That's what he says to us today as well. Close with this, this thought from John Stott about this, and I think this is so true for all of us. When I talked about how in the culture we can, we can get into a defensive kind of a mode, or maybe even an aggressive mode, but we just lose the purpose. He says, so the church today, like the church at Ephesus, has a work to be done, a fight to be fought, and a creed to be championed. But above all, it has a person to be loved with the love we had for him at first, a love undying. We want to believe the right things. We want to serve faithfully to the point of investing our lives in the purposes of God. We want to do all of that. But primarily, it is a, it is a person to be loved. Keep yourself in the love of God, Jude says. Keep yourself in the love of God. Because he first loved us, we can love him in return. Let's pray. God, we come today and we just recognize our own need for you. And we thank you for truth. We thank you for preserving us as a church in truth. Um, we thank you for the many who serve faithfully, toiling day in and day out. We, pray for, we thank you for the many in our church who have endured patiently opposition from family or opposition from people in the workplace or the neighborhood, and they've just endured patiently. Uh, they've endured opposition from even other Christians who've, who've turned and, and, um, and opposed them, and, and, and there's just been a patient endurance. 
thank you for working those in us. But Lord, we do not want to be like the Ephesians, believing right things, doing right things, enduring hard things, and yet abandoning our love for you and our love for one another. God, would you tenderize our hearts? Would you soften our hearts? Would you help us to remember what it was like when your word was alive, your spirit was fresh to us, the people of God were a joy? Would, would, you, would you return us to that place? Lord, help us to turn back to you where, where we have grown cold. Thank you for this warning. Lord, which may not be for all of us, but certainly is for some of us. Thank you for this warning today, uh, because some of us are headed that direction. Please call us back to yourself and help us to do, full of faith, full of life, what you've done for us. Thank you that you're among us, that you walk among us as a people, loving us, caring for us, encouraging us, strengthening us, commending us, and correcting us as well. Thank you for that, Lord. We're so grateful. We welcome your presence. We welcome you and we ask that you would help us to be a people to glorify your name with a heart full of love. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.